I want to. Uh, good morning. Good morning. I want to. I want to be honest right from the start. Uh, this is going to be a little longer than normal this morning. I have two services worth of data to support that claim. Um, if you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Genesis chapter six. Um, I also want to be honest with you in that you're going to need sort of like all of your intellectual, mental capacities turned on full blast this morning. One of the things that kind of letting you behind the curtain a little bit on this Genesis series, um, we're trying to, to do a little bit more in this series maybe than would be normal. Any passage or book of scripture that we work through on Sunday mornings, what we're trying to do is understand what the Bible has to say and then ultimately beyond understanding what we want is for our hearts to be, you know, sort of like the flame in our hearts fanned uh, for a love and a passion for Jesus and the gospel. We want to see that throughout scripture. But one of what we're trying to do in this Genesis series is a little bit bigger than that uh, even, or there are some secondary goals in that. And if you've been here for the majority of the sermons in this series, maybe you've picked up on it, but Genesis 1 through 11 gives us not just kind of the foundations for our Christian faith and, and who God is and the theological truths of like God's holiness and humanity's sin, but Genesis 1 through 11 also provides for us the basis of how it is that we as Christians think about morality and ethics. It provides for us the basis of like Christian philosophy and our, our view of culture and society. It's why we've tried to talk about things like the arts and technology and science. And we've tried to bring to the surface uh, issues about uh, the human dignity and worth of, or the dignity and worth of humanity and men and women and gender and sexuality and how men and women re- relate to one another within the church and the people of God. And, and we're trying to surface all of these different issues because we exist in a world where the like subtle influence of what is often termed new atheism has started to be a pretty pervasive um, thought process, even among Christians, actually. And if you're familiar with authors like uh, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris, or you, you've maybe heard some of those names. Those are the, the individuals who have kind of pushed forward this new atheism. What new atheism does is it takes any faith, uh, Christianity in specific in the West, but really any religion. And what it does is it says that in order to take seriously any claims of faith, what you have to do first and foremost is come to the Bible, in the case of Christianity, and turn your brain off. And you've got to be willing to just take what it says at face value and then not think. And when I say that that has subtly influenced not just society as a whole, but even the church, I, what I mean is that oftentimes you will hear people from outside the church ask maybe not antagonistic or intentionally like inflammatory questions about whether it be an intellectual or philosophical or moral or an ethical thing from scripture. And Christians will often adopt this turn your brain off thing and say, well, I don't know, I just believe it. And on the one hand, faith is a wonderful thing and we will never have all of the answers on this side of heaven and so faith is necessary for us to believe. On the other hand, instead of turning our brains off when we come to scripture, one of the things I hope this Genesis series is doing is showing you, you can turn your brain all the way up when you come to this book. 
and you can ask hard questions intellectually. You can ask difficult questions philosophically, morally, ethically, and the deeper you dive into this, rather than it exposing a bunch of cracks, it is my firm belief that the deeper you dive into this, the more glorious and beautiful the wonder of the gospel becomes. And I think Genesis 1 through 11 is a fantastic place to do some of that deep digging. And so this morning, when I say you need to turn your brain all the way up, we're going to ask intellectual questions this morning that are challenging, and the intellectual questions will be the easiest ones that we face. Because after the intellectual questions, there's a significant theological question this morning, and after the theological question, there is a very difficult philosophical question. And I want to answer all of those, and I've already warned you that it's going to take a little while, okay? You ready? All right, Genesis 6 is where we are. Verses 1 through 8 say this. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, I pray that your spirit present here among us would give us hearts and minds open to the truth of your word, God. Help us supernaturally to understand who you are and who we are. Help us supernaturally to grasp not just sort of some of these intellectual questions, God, but to really take hold deep in our heart of the deep things of who you are and why that matters for us and why that matters for humanity. And as we do that, God, would it just build within us a deeper sense of love for the gospel so that what we sang just now would actually be true, that when these poor lisping, stammering tongues lie silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, we would sing thy power to save. God, would you return us to that melody this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go intellectual, theological, philosophical, and then we'll end practical. And and just walking through the text sort of puts it in that order for us. So your English Bible doesn't do a ton of, like service to understanding the first eight chapters or the first eight verses of Genesis chapter six. And the reason for that is because it's most likely that whatever translation you're using puts a break after, cha- after verse four. So you've got a four verse chunk, some sort of new heading there at, before verse five, and then a four verse chunk after that. And the reason that that doesn't help us is because 
this is all still in one account. If you look at verse 9, verse 9 is going to shift us into the next section of Genesis. These are the family records of Noah. We talked about that phrase at the very start of the series. These are the family records of, or this is the book of the records of. That appears 10 times in the book of Genesis. We've seen two of them already. Chapter two, these are the records of the heavens and the earth. Like this is the story of the universe. And then at the start of chapter five, these are the family records, or this is the book containing the family records of Adam. Now, Noah gets introduced at the end of that. Noah is born at the end of chapter five. Noah's dad says, ah, this one is gonna give us relief from the ground, the curse that the Lord has put upon the ground. And then we're told that Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But we don't jump right into now these are the family records of Noah. There's like an eight verse sidebar here that wants to tell you something about why Noah of boat fame is worth talking about. And so Genesis 6, 1 through 8, gives you something from the family records of Adam that makes it so that you would need the family records of Noah. Make sense? But verses 1 through 8 are one unit not two. The intellectual questions come in verses one through four. There are at least three of them. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men or mankind were beautiful. There's question number one. And they took any they choose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. There's question number two. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. There's question number three. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of mankind? What's up with the 120 years? What does that mean? And who are the Nephilim? And so I think it would be disingenuous to not at least offer uh, some thoughts on each of those. If you've got your phone, I don't know what your data situation is. If you're more of a visual person, I'm gonna give some options for what scholars and theologians think some of these things mean. And if it would help you to see that in chart form, you can go to www.thebibleinitiative.com, click on chapter six, scroll down a little bit. There's a chart of everything that I'm about to verbally explain if it would help you to look at it. The sons of God and the daughters of men. There are three really prominent views there, or at least three that are most common. The first is that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of mankind or men are humans. And so what you have here in Genesis 6 verse 2 are angels and humans marrying or angels forcibly taking humans as wives, something of that nature. Now there's some support for that particular strain of thought. One of them is linguistic. That phrase, sons of God, every time you see it in the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis, it's referring to angels. That is like the Old Testament's sort of shorthand way of talking about angels. They're the sons of God. So that's a pretty strong reasoning. Another support is that the New Testament appears to offer two passages that talk about this time frame. One of them is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and one of them is in the book of Jude, verses 6 and 7. And then there's also a support from Christian history. This view of angels and humanity in some form or fashion was the dominant view adopted by early Christian thinkers and scholars. There are some challenges to this view. One of those is that there's been no mention of angels up to this point in the book of Genesis. And so they sort of just would be appearing here out of nowhere with a cryptic phrase to describe them. 
no context for their presence at this point. Another challenge is that the phrase for take wives, choose as wives right there in verse two is the exact same phrase throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew that is used in talking about marriage. When Jesus comes onto the scene during his ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says explicitly, angels do not marry. Okay, so what do we do with that? here in this instance, if this is talking about angels. One more challenge is that the passage in Jude, verses six and seven, is talking explicitly about sexual immorality, not marriage. So it's possible that Jude isn't referencing this particular time period in human history. View number two, the sons of God are Cainite kings, and they're marrying the daughters of mankind. Cainite kings, meaning chapter four, when we got the lineage of Cain, that some of those individuals are ruling over people groups by this time. And what they're doing is that they're taking like harems worth of wives. Whereas the previous position in terms of its support had the fact that this is like, uh, has some Christian history to it. This is a very new position. These Canaanite kings position actually came about in the 1960s. And it came about because as we continue to get uh, more ancient manuscripts of Sumerian and Babylonian literature, this phrase, sons of God, appears frequently, or sons of the gods, appears frequently to talk about kings. And so as human knowledge has expanded with archaeology and those types of things, we gain more insight into what particular phrases in ancient languages means. And so one of the supports here is that in Babylonian and Sumerian literature all over the place, kings are called sons of the divine, sons of the gods. So maybe that's the same thing that's being communicated here. Why would they be Cainite kings? Well, because chapter four already told us that polygamy started in Cain's line. So this would be those kings perpetuating that same sin. Again, there are some challenges to this view. One being, we were not told anything about there being large people groups and rulers over them from the line of Cain. That appears to come out of nowhere, if that's what this means. Another would be that the Old Testament never uses that Babylonian Sumerian phraseology to talk about kings. Kings within Jewish literature are never called sons of the gods or sons of God. Why? Because that viewpoint of God and humanity is absolutely foreign and antithetical to Jewish thinking. There's going to be one person who enters into the world and calls himself the son of God, and he's going to self-give that title. No one else is going to give it to him. That's Jesus. Uh, One more challenge. Why in the world would Moses start talking about kings for the very first time here with such a cryptic phrase? Just use the word kings, man. Like if that's what we've got, just tell us they're kings. At the same time, Moses is the author so he can use whatever word he wants. So maybe that challenge isn't particularly valid. The third viewpoint is that these would be sons of Seth and daughters of Cain. What's the support for that? The context from Genesis 4, 5, and the start of 6 seems to point us in that direction. All the way back, actually, in Genesis chapter 3, you've got this contrast between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then in Genesis chapters 4 and 5, you get the seed of the serpent being Cain and the seed of the uh, woman being Seth. So you've got these godly line and this sinful line. And this would be to say that the sons of God, the godly line, started taking the daughters of 
the sinful line in intermarrying. And whereas Genesis chapter 3 said there would be hostility between those two parties, now here we are in Genesis chapter 6, and they're just joyfully coexisting and marrying one another. That theme of the people of God marrying those outside the people of God is going to be a common theme and a common snare for Israel all throughout the Old Testament. What are the challenges? Well, there's the linguistic challenge of the sons of God. It does mean angels otherwhere, other places in the Old Testament. That's clear. And so if you want to make it mean something else than that, you'd have, the burden of proof would be on you to show that these aren't angels. And then you could also use the, why didn't Moses just say Seth's line and Cain's line? Like, why has this got to be so complicated? Where do I fall? Great question. I'm glad you asked. At the moment, I think I fall in the third camp, but I reserve the right to change my mind at any point when I so choose. Why? Literally nothing hangs on this. Like your salvation, some deep doctrine, nothing hangs in the balance on where you fall in the sons of God and the daughters of men. But it is a difficult intellectual challenge when you come to this particular passage and want to understand it. And then you roll right into the next challenge. Verse three, and the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. That's the first statement of God's judgment here among uh, the pre-flood days. He's going to remove his spirit from mankind, and he says their days will be 120 years. What does that mean? Two views on that. It could mean that human ages are going to be restricted to about 120 years. When you're in Genesis chapter 5 and you're reading Seth's line, the age ranges were very large. Like some of these people were living 900 years, 700 years. That's what Genesis 5 appears to say. And God says, I'm hemming that in. Humanity will live 120 years. Why? So they can't just perpetuate more and more and more and more evil as they get more creative with their brokenness over the length of their lifetime. That's one view. The other view is that there's 120 years between that statement and the flood. And that judgment will come in 120 years. And there's like this period where humanity could repent before the flood. Those are the two views. And then you get to verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Who in the world are the Nephilim? When you talk about Genesis 6, 1 through 4, most people want to ask that question. Who, who is this group of people? And typically, we sort of subconsciously think that the sons of God and the daughters of mankind, like maybe the Nephilim are their children, or maybe the sons of God are the Nephilim, and this is all talking about one thing. But I actually think the passage makes it seem as though the sons of God and the daughters of mankind and their children are one thing, and the Nephilim are given as this like anchoring point for Israel. You remember the Nephilim? This was all going on when the Nephilim were around. Doesn't necessarily mean that the Nephilim are some component of that whole thing. This would be like someone writing the history of liberty 5,000 years from now, and they say, you remember when the Fritzens were running around? This happened back then. And whatever happened doesn't necessarily have to involve the Fritzens, but it would give like an anchoring point to this is in that time when the Fritzens were here. And then we're told they, that doesn't help us, who they? The Nephilim, the sons of God, the daughters of mankind, the children of that, who is the they that was powerful and doing 
famous things. And so you get to the end of chapter, or verse 4 in chapter 6, and you're swimming in so many intellectual quandaries that you either stop reading there and pick it up the next day, and when you pick it up the next day, you're totally separated now when you get to verse 5, or you keep reading on into verse 5, but your brain is so caught up on all of the questions that it's hard to absorb what comes next. I think the bigger point is this. Sin is running rampant here. And it's actually verse five that tells you that. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind, your translation might say heart, was only evil continuously, are nothing but evil all the time. Okay, now we're tying together what's going on. The author of Genesis, Moses says, you remember these days? The Nephilim were there, sons of God, daughters of men. The sin was so bad. And that's the point you're supposed to land on. Whatever comes next, sin had gotten so wildly out of control by now that what started in the garden eating fruit and then went to murder and then went to polygamy has now advanced to this point where the thoughts of the human mind and heart are only evil all the time. And sin has just stained and corrupted and broken everything. And so where human history remembers humanity's outward achievements, They were famous men. Your translation about the Nephilim might say giants. There were giants on the earth. You're like, hey, remember the giants? The women were beautiful. The sons of God were taking the daughters of men into marriage and whatever that entailed. And you get hung up on all the outward stuff. God sees the heart of the matter. And that's the bigger deal. That the human achievement doesn't outweigh the reality of sin here. In fact, the prominence of that is actually baked into sort of the verbiage in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Do you remember what the text told us when Eve first took the fruit? She saw that the fruit was appealing to look at, good for gaining wisdom. She took some of the fruit and she ate. Did you see the description in verse 2? The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any that they choose, chose as wives. Sin is the thing that's being highlighted here. And then verse five gives you the final sort of uh, description of it. It's running rampant. Legan Duncan, pastor and author, says it this way. Moses is telling you the truth. He's giving you a very real assessment of the impressive feats and abilities of the people in this generation. And yet he's telling you at the same time that they were spiritually broken. Though man may seem to be master of his domain, when he rebels against the Lord, there will be consequences. The women were beautiful. The men were mighty. They did feats of renown. But God was unimpressed. And so if you finally navigate all of those questions, you settle yourself on whatever answers you want, you know, just pick, pick whichever answers feel comfortable to you in all of those things. Then you get to verse 5 and 6, and the questions get more difficult because now they're theological in nature. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Okay, now we got questions about who God is. Because up to this point in our series and in the first five and a half chapters of Genesis, we've been talking about God as all-knowing, 
all-powerful, sovereign, in control. And now we've got some hard statements about that same God here in the days before Noah or before the flood. We've been trying to build like a comprehensive picture of sin. And the thing I want to add to that this morning, it comes explicitly out of our text, is that sin grieves God. There's like a visceral reaction to God when he sees the sin on the world or in the world at this point in human history. That sin, as we've already mentioned, is both internal and external. They're doing wicked things, but the most sort of condemning part of the verse is that every inclination of the human heart or mind was nothing but evil all the time. Like the internal thing is worse than the external. The behavior is wicked and bad and it's widespread and it's everywhere, but the real problem is inside. Only evil. All the time. Continuously. Outwardly, wickedness is overwhelmingly great, but internally, the problems are even deeper, so much so that God has this visceral reaction, and he's deeply grieved, we're told. Literally, he hurts in spirit. That is the Bible's first description of God's emotional response to sin. We're trying to use imperfect human language to describe the divine here. The internal, emotional, or like intellectual world of infinite God looks down at all of the sin of the world and he's hurt in spirit. He's deeply grieved. We tend to think about God and his reaction to sin and we jump to anger. God sees sin and he gets mad. What's the first thing the Bible tells you that God does when he sees sin? Grieves. He's hurt in his spirit by it. And the Bible is going to paint that picture of God's grief over sin repeatedly in the Old Testament. Think back to when you were young, maybe a teenager, young adult in college, something like that. And whatever moment with your family where you blew it the absolute worst. And either your parents saw it or you had to go and tell them or someone else went and told them in some capacity. And then the moment of reckoning came where you had a conversation and your mom or dad looked at you and much calmer than you expected. They said, I'm not mad. And you thought, don't say it. I'm just disappointed. I remember that moment so clearly in my my own life. I was a sophomore in high school. Um, I was late for curfew and I'd already just decided that, oh, you know, we're already late, so you might as well be real late. Um, And there was a road that my parents, here in Liberty, that my parents had very explicitly said, you are not to drive on this road. It was windy and curvy. Um, There were no street lights. There was no shoulder. It was in the woods. And I'm driving late at night in the winter and one thing leads to another. I'm on that road after curfew. I slide off the road. I crash my car into the woods. I'm a few miles away from home and I, there's a decision to make. I either walk to the nearest neighbor's house, wake them up in the middle of the night and ask for a ride home or I walk home and think about what you did. I chose to walk. And uh, my mom actually reminded me after first service, um, after second service, the neighbor nearby heard the accident and called the police. So the police actually beat me to my house. So my parents are awake and the police have already told them your son had a car accident. And 
I've got to now take my parents to where I am. But, you know, you lead with the car accident, so they're just glad you're okay, you know? And then we get in the car and we start driving to where the accident happened. And as it becomes very apparent where it is that we're headed, I can see that my dad is like fuming mad. And then we get there and there's my car, you know, 50 yards off the road into the woods, wedged in between trees. And I can literally like see my dad's shoulders like drop. And he's just disappointed. Like he is just grieved by the fact that I would be so blatantly disobedient to a thing that he, he put on me for my protection and my own good. I would just blow through that and potentially harm myself. Like he is disappointed and grieved. God looks down at the world here in Genesis chapter six. He sees sin so incredibly widespread and he's grieved. Why? Well, because that sin hurts other people. They're murdering each other. They're taking multiple wives and forcing all of the pain of polygamy into the situation. Whatever in the world is going on between the sons of God and the daughters of men, however you want to position that, it's not good. And God looks down, he sees all the pain that that's causing and he's grieved, but also caused pain to the ones who sin. Like image bearers in every direction here are bearing the pain of sin that was never supposed to be a part of the world to begin with. And God is grieved, but even worse than all of that, is the reality that humanity here is repeatedly choosing to give their obedience and their devotion and to assign lordship to someone other than God, namely themselves. I will decide what is right and wrong. I will do as I want. And the sin at that point in the early biblical history is so great, it slid so far downhill that we're told that God is deeply grieved, but we're also told that he regrets. And that Hebrew word is the word niham. It's one of a couple words used throughout the Old Testament for repent. Okay, so now the theological question gets very serious. What do you mean God repents? What do you mean he regrets? He knows all things. He has all power. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. And yet, he could regret or repent and be grieved over that which he not only knew, but if he's sovereign and in control, he actually caused to happen? Aren't all of those things contradictory? How is this possible? I think it's worth trying to explain, and we need to use a different passage to do that. So if you have a Bible open in front of you, flip to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is king and Samuel is high priest in Israel. And God, the, the Lord has told Saul via Samuel, the high priest, that he is to go to war against the Amalekites as judgment for the Amalekites' sin. And he is to uh, not only go to war against them as judgment, but he's to destroy like all the animals and all of their stuff and take no plunder and, and bring like judgment through that. And so Saul carries out the battle, but the Israelite army takes some of the plunder. If you've got 1 Samuel 15 open, this is verse 9. 1 Samuel 15, verse 9. Saul and his troops spared Agog, that's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Now, that seems practical. Keep the good stuff. Get rid of the bad stuff. But that is not what God told 
Saul and the army to do. So verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. That's the high priest. I regret Neham. I repent that I made Saul king for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, I love this, and this is one of the best Old Testament interactions in all of the Bible. Saul says to Samuel, may the Lord bless you. I carried out the Lord's instructions. To which Samuel replied, then what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle that I hear? If you've got an, a King James, it says, then what is this bleeding in my ears? Bleating with a T. Samuel says, I know you didn't carry out the Lord's instructions. I hear animals and you were supposed to kill them all. And in the middle of all of that, we're told the Lord regrets that he made Saul king. Repents. It would seem in this passage and in Genesis that what God is saying is, if I had this to do over again, I would do it differently. And if that's the case, then it either means that God does not know the outcomes of his decisions and actions, and therefore he's not omniscient, he's not all-knowing, or he can make mistakes, and he's not perfect. And those are both massive theological quandaries. Our emotional worlds are complicated, so some deeper thinking is necessary here. I have... Uh, laughed while crying, right? Like something's going on inside of me and I'm visibly sad and yet I'm laughing at the same time. And if I can do that and God is infinitely greater and higher than I am, surely his emotional world is even more complicated, emotional world, whatever, however you want to picture that with God, is more complicated than even mine is. Jump forward to verses 24 and 25 there in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel and Saul, they go back and forth. And Saul says, verse 24, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel, Yahweh, does not lie or niham, change his mind. For he is not a God who nihams, changes his mind. The Lord repented. The Lord does not repent. Which one is it? It's both. In one sense, God regrets, and in another sense, God does not ever regret. God knows everything that's going to happen, and he chooses and he acts with perfect knowledge of everything that will play out. So when he makes Saul king, he knows every single one of the ways in which Saul will defy God's true kingship over Israel and defy God's lordship. And yet, when the disobedience and the defiance happens, we're told God grieves regrets. But saying he regrets is not saying that he would do it differently because if he had to do it over again, he would do the same thing. Why? Because God knows exactly what is necessary to bring about the fulfillment of his plans and his purposes. Let me illustrate. If you had an adult child, picture an adult child, they've completely 
destroyed their life with a long-standing drug addiction. They've estranged all their relationships. They've lost all of their money. They've got nothing left. They're at the very end of themselves. And you decide, I'm taking my child to rehab. I'm going to get them and I'm going to drag them there. And if you knew the future in that moment, and you knew that that decision for the next 17 years of your life was going to mean that you would have no relationship with that child. They will want nothing to do with you. They will use verbiage that they hate you. They will not want to talk to you. They will not want to see you. They will not want to have the family name any longer. They would literally wish that you were dead. But you could see the future. And you knew that 17 years from now, life cleaned up, relationships restored, They were going to realize what a gift you had given them and your relationship would be restored. You would make the decision to take them to rehab and you would grieve it for 17 years even though you knew the outcome. God grieves. You would regret what was happening but you'd do it again because you knew the ultimate good that would come from it. Take all that back to Genesis chapter six. God is looking down on a world that is so unthinkably broken by sin and he's grieved. He regrets the reality of the situation to the point where the text tells us that he regrets the very pinnacle of his creation, which is humanity. And yet he do all of this again. Why? Because this earth, like we talked about in Genesis 1, is the great theater of his glory. And he knows that it will be the redemption of those broken, sinning human beings that will ultimately shout into the cosmos the full depth of his beauty and his glory and his wonder and his character. That, after all, is the purpose of this place. And so he'd do it again. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which we've turned almost exclusively into this intellectual quandary, is using narrative to set up a theological reality that gets ultimate description in verses 5 and 6. Sin is out of control. It hurts God in his spirit. How bad does it hurt to the point where the best human description that we can give is regret, even though his regret's not like ours. But there's good news in the midst of all of that, so let's press forward. Unfortunately, there's good news after an even deeper question than the one we just tried to answer. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I, Niham, I regret that I made them. Verse eight, Noah, however, found favor with God. Here's the philosophical question. It ought to be, out of all the stuff we've read so far, verse seven, that sort of stops you in your tracks. God's just gonna take a giant eraser to everyone and everything that he's created. Everything you talked about from Genesis chapter one, God looking down and saying it's very good indeed. Everything you talked about in terms of the dignity of humanity and the worth of humanity and God's high place for them and the relationship that they have, you're telling me now it's just gonna wipe it all out. And furthermore, what did the birds do wrong? Like, why the animals? What is going on here? If God is all the things that we sort of assume that he is, and when you talk about God, even with skeptics and atheists in, in our context, Everybody brings with them the eyes of the God of the Bible or the view of the God of the Bible. We talk about God through a lens of Christianity. So that God is love. And the quick rebuttal when you talk about judgment 
is for even Christians within the church to say, well, God is love. As a means whereby we can either say the God of the Old Testament must be different or God must not actually be judge, judge, judging and just, and righteous and holy. And so we look at something like Genesis 6 and our modern sensibilities say, how can he do that? We're going to wrestle with that question over the next few weeks as we work through Noah and his boat. But it's worth surfacing now. Can God do that? Completely depends on how you think about the reality of sin. If you bring all of your modern presuppositions to the question of sin, you would say sin is mostly bad things that good people do. It's like little mistakes. Whoops. And some people's bad things that they do are worse than others, but people are, are good. We just have slip-ups. And that's the dominant idea of sin outside the church. But unfortunately, that's also crept further and further into the church, whereby even those who are followers of Jesus kind of have this mentality that sin is just bad things that really good, ultimately good people kind of do sometimes. But that is not the biblical view of sin. And if you've been reading Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 with no modern presuppositions, your understanding of sin would be that in response to sin, God's judgment is just. Like by the time you get to Genesis 6, 7, God's already told you the consequence for sin back in Genesis 3. What was it? Eat the fruit and you will death. And then Genesis 4 and 5 showed you the reality of that of that death. You've got death by sinful human means and humans are killing each other. And then you've got Genesis 5 where just people are dying. He died, then 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 he died. Then Noah was born. Now in Genesis chapter 6, you would arrive and you've got God bringing death into the world in a divine sense. And if you were able to set down all of your Western modern presuppositions, you would get to Genesis 6 and the question would not be, how could God do that? The question would be, why do he wait so long? Like he said in chapter three that this was gonna be the case for eating the fruit and they did that and they lived. And then a guy murdered a guy and he lived. And then there was like the celebrating of sin in Genesis chapter four and they all lived and they had kids. Why has God waited so long? If sin is the cosmic transgression against the rule and the reign of the creator of the world, the Bible says that it is. If it's something that grieves him to his very core, that besmirches the display of his glory in the universe, then judgment makes sense. And that judgment would need to fit the severity of the transgression. The shocking piece of all of this, if you could just come to Genesis without any sort of modern uh, thinking infecting the way that you read it, the question would be, how did, how did God let it get that bad? And then verses seven and eight shove two things right next to each other that Genesis has been doing this whole time, and that is judgment and grace. We're told that Noah found favor with God. Literally, he found grace. It's the first time in Scripture where the word grace appears. We're told that Noah found it. It's not the first time that grace has been described or that we've seen God be gracious, but it's the first time the word is used. 
Grace means receiving something that you do not deserve. And so like Enoch from last week's passage who walked with God and then was taken by God, Noah's not meriting whatever is about to happen to him. It's grace. He's receiving something he doesn't deserve. It would be like you walking down the street and you see a piece of trash blowing and you say, I don't like litter. And so you go and you grab the piece of trash and you pick it up and you're like, whoa, this isn't a piece of trash. This is a check. And so you're like, well, we gotta, I should get the check either back to the person that belongs to or I should rip it up. And so you look at it and you see this is not any normal check. This is a $5 million check. And then you see it's made out to you. It's got your name, paid to the order of, and your name written there. And you say, ha, what favor I have found today. Grace has smiled upon me and I'm $5 million richer. You'd call right there. I'm retiring. (laughs) Noah found favor and God acts in grace to give Noah and thus all of humanity something it doesn't deserve, deliverance from just judgment. Too often we think about judgment in the Old Testament according to our modern sensibilities as opposed to thinking about judgment in the Old Testament according to biblical reality. And the reality of the biblical picture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is that God could justly judge sin with the consequence of death at any moment. And according to modern sensibility, that judgment when it comes in the Old Testament seems utterly shocking to us. But the thing that ought to be shocking based on biblical reality is grace. You'd be reading this with none of your presuppositions and you'd say, why do these people keep living? Like Adam and Eve sin and God lets them walk out of the garden, says you're gonna continue to bear children and here are clothes. Cain kills Abel and God speaks his pronouncement upon, upon Cain and Cain says, oh, my, this punishment is too great for me to bear. And God says, okay, I'll graciously give you a mark so that no one will kill you out of vengeance. Humanity in Genesis chapter 6 is every inclination of their mind and heart is only evil all the time. Wickedness is widespread. Let me show you this man named Noah who found grace, favor. And grace and judgment get shoved together all throughout the Old Testament. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, just let us go. Or this, Ten times, Pharaoh says no. All the prophets come to Israel as they're worshiping false gods all throughout their history, and the prophets say, repent, 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 or judgment. But if you would just repent, or God sends Jonah to Nineveh, one message, tell him to repent, or I'm going to destroy the city. Jonah goes, ah, I don't want to be here, but repent or he's going to destroy the city. And then he sits outside and he's sad. Why? Because they repented. And they received the grace that was available before God's just judgment for sin came in. And now, brother or sister in Christ, God holds out grace to you despite the reality of judgment. Why? Because what we just celebrated in communion Jesus drank the full cup of God's just judgment for your sin that you might find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. 
In Genesis chapter six, God says, I will wipe out humanity, but Noah has found favor. Now in Christ, God says, I wiped out the sun that humanity might find favor. We do not sing obligatory grace. How constraining. God has to forgive me. That doesn't stir our affections. But the sort of like brought in worldly perspective of God is that he is love and thus he has no choice. He cannot act in judgment because he must forgive. And we often think that as Christians. We will sin just openly, repeatedly and kind of wink at God. Hey, thanks, big guy. You have to forgive me. You have no choice. And our modern sensibility, judgment is shocking to us. But I want to amend this statement. Because in response to sin, God's judgment is just and his grace is the thing that is shocking. And so we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And all throughout scripture, what screams at you is not the shockingness of a holy, righteous, just, loving, patient, kind, good, gracious, merciful God forgiving or judging. What screams at you is that this God would be gracious to you. And our knee-jerk reaction to someone saying, I'm not interested in a God who seems petty and capricious and angry and judging, our knee-jerk reaction is to actually become less biblical. I'll talk less about the reality of sin. I'll downplay how serious it is. You know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe we are good people who just do bad things. But if you want the truth of the gospel to really shine in a broken world, you've got to be as expressly biblical about sin as you possibly can be. It's wrecking humanity. It breaks our world in innumerable ways. And the just punishment for that would be God's judgment upon sin. And the just judgment for that, God says, would be death. But let me tell you about a man named Jesus who is God in the flesh come into the world to absorb upon himself the full wrath of God that humanity might find favor. What a broken world needs is not, you know what, you're right. Sin's not a big deal and God just kind of winks at it and moves on. What a broken world needs is sin is serious. God is holy, just, and righteous. Judgment would be death, but a man took it in your place who did not deserve it in and of himself and the son was wiped out that you might find favor. What does any of that mean practically? I'm gonna give you five of these things rapid fire and then I'll stop talking. Number one, in light of grace, brother or sister in Christ, we can cultivate godly responses to our sin. In light of grace, we can grieve over our sin. Not grieve over the consequences of our sin, but grieve over the sin itself. 
We've disobeyed and attempted to dethrone God. We've assigned supreme value to something other than him. It's potentially harmed other people who bear his image. It's harmed us who bear his image. And that can be grief-inducing. Like, oh, I just, I weep over the reality of my sin. And in light of grace, number two, we can be honest about our sin. This is the act of confession. We can be honest about our sin because we know that God knows and that, in grace, or, and that by his grace in Christ, he has forgiven us. But he hasn't winked at it and said, I'll pretend like it didn't happen. Jesus received the fullness of God's judgment for it. And your grace is extended to you because judgment was poured out upon Christ, not you. And we can just be honest about our sin. Grace empowers followers of Jesus to be radically honest about the reality of who we are and how we're broken. And the intent is not to self-loathe or to self-punish, but instead to bring our sin to the Lord in light of his grace where we can receive forgiveness and in light of grace number three, then be relentless toward our sin. The purpose of confession is not to confess our sin and then continue to walk in it. The same grace that forgives us, also empowers us to repent, to turn from our sin and walk in a new direction. By God's grace, we can learn to hate our sin. That's been something that I have found in my prayers constantly. God, I wanna hate my sin. I don't wanna be mildly annoyed by my sin. I do not want to enjoy my sin. I don't wanna be just bothered by the consequences of my sin. I want to hate the fact that I like to sin in every single facet of what that looks like. It's grace that empowers that. But until we've cultivated godly responses to our sin, until we've been courageously honest about our sin, we're probably never going to walk forward in repentance. And it's grace that empowers the whole process. Number four, in light of grace, we can be firm in confronting the world's sin. Grace empowers us not to look the other way at the sin of the world and the sin of the lost, but it also conditions our posture toward them. Grace cultivates within us not a self-righteousness or a condemning attitude. Instead, It cultivates godly grief so that when we see the sin of the world, we don't rail against them in anger, but instead we weep over them in grief. Instead of looking at the world and wagging our finger, grace cultivates a heart that looks at the world, feels the weight of its sin, recognizes the eternal consequences of that sin, and grieves not just the outcomes in our society, but the reality of that sin on an eternal scale. It does no one any good to paper over the reality of sin. It does no one any good to pretend that sin is not sin. It does no one any good to join in the celebration of sin, but it also does no one any good to be condescending or angry or self-righteous, which leads me to the last piece, that in light of grace, we can be bold in sharing the beauty of the gospel. If sin is what the Bible says it is, and God is who the Bible says he is, then the gospel truly is the greatest news in the world. Grace empowers us to share the full beauty of the gospel with a world that is lost in sin. Grace empowers us to preach a full gospel that starts with a true and an honest discussion about who God is and a true and honest discussion about the reality of sin and the reality of what that means for us and the fullness of who he is so that we can take them right to the cross and say, see how shocking the sun is. Grace empowers us to preach a gospel that holds Jesus high as the one who drank the full cup of God's just judgment so that we might find favor like Noah. And you can look at a lost world and say, it would be as if you were walking down the street one day and a piece of trash blew by. 
You bent down to pick it up and you saw that that piece of trash was actually a check. You opened up that check and you saw this is not just any check, it's a $5 million check. And it's not just any $5 million check, it's a $5 million check paid to the order of you. That would be the best day of your entire life. But God's grace is something wildly more shocking because he has covered your sin. Corey Tinboom, in her journal, uh, after her death, there's a little paragraph um, and there's a statement inside that paragraph that caught my uh, attention this week. It says, the gospel of grace in Christ, or displayed to us in Christ, is as though God took our, the worst of our sin, threw it into the deepest part of the ocean, and then stuck a sign there that says, no fishing. He's paid it in full. Drank the cup of that judgment on our place. He was wiped out that we might find favor. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they were, are many. His mercy is more. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Go ahead and stand.